If I can make one bold claim. Yeah. I came to the conviction, I already had this notion that, and especially with all the brouhaha that we've been experiencing out in the culture, right? In the past five to 10 years, uh, that it's time to double down on the primary mission of the church and the spirituality of the church. If ever there was a time for clear, precise distinctions, now's the time so that people aren't led astray. And then Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hey y'all, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We started a Bible study in Santa Ana under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church. We've got a growing group of people from a wide variety of backgrounds with the hope and prayer that we will plant a church in Santa Ana this summer. If you're looking for a church that preaches the gospel every week and has close-knit fellowship, contact us at Reformed at gmail.com or find a link in our show notes to be added to our list. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today is a book club episode. We have Brian Estelle on. He's going to be talking about his book, The Primary Mission of the Church. It's published by Mentor Christian Focus, part of the REDS series. When REDS stands for Reformed Exegetical Doctrinal Studies. It's edited by Matthew Barrett and J.V. Fesco, a couple familiar names to our show. And before we jump into this episode, as a reminder, as always, to a few links on our show notes. If you find uh, the local church finder link, you can type in your zip code and find the closest Reformed churches near you. There's also a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. That is a group of other like-minded podcasts that we are a part of. And then there's a link to Mentor Christian Focus, where you can find a copy of this book to get for yourselves. And there's also some information on how to find out how to be a bridge builder to support our show. And so we will jump in and have Peter further introduce Brian Estelle. Yep, we got a, another professor from my esteemed institution, Westminster Seminary, California. It's Brian Estelle, professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, where he served since 2000 and was ordained as a minister in the OPC, where Nick is also a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1996. But we will more particularly talk about the primary mission of the church, what that is, and, and why this matters for, for Christians, both of the quote-unquote academic type and the quote-unquote lay level type. So, um, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. I'm excited to talk about this topic and, and what the what the church exists here for. Great, thanks for the invitation, man. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, starting off, um, you talk about this this acronym SOTC quite a bit throughout the book, and you define it. But if you can give kind of a quick definition of what SOTC or spirituality of the church and, and why. why why this is covered in this book. Yeah, sure. Um, So the title of the book is The Primary Mission of the Church. When I was invited to contribute to this series, 
I had proposed the title, The Spirituality of the Church, which was a common phrase to capture um, an ecclesiastical doctrine that I'll describe in just a minute. And the folks in Scotland wanted um, uh, this title. Authors rarely have control over their title. <laughs> That's what we hear a lot. <laughs> yes. Uh, but um, nevertheless, I knew in talking about the primary mission of the church that in a lot of the literature and in the history of the church, the spirituality of the church has been the catchphrase to describe much of what I would be talking about it. So I do use it during the book and I'll use it during this podcast. And, um, but that's how it relates. So my definition of the spirituality of the church is those things that are properly of and properly belong to the church. So it's a, it's a kind of functional definition, if you will. Um, so in other words, the church is given a particular job description, uh, primarily to administer the means of grace. So we would include yeah. um, the ministry of the word, the right of administration of the sacraments. Um, Presbyterians would include prayer in that. Mm -hmm. Continental uh, reform would differ a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, not that they don't believe in prayer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. People will assure you they do. Yeah. Um, but, um, but then also we would include in kind of a small M means of grace, um, other items as well. So, for example, discipline of the members of the church, which mm -hmm. is restorative. Uh, we don't view discipline as punitive, yeah, yeah, rather for the glory of Christ and the restoration of sinners and the care of the saints through diaconal uh, giving and care and that kind of thing. So, it has to do with church power and authority. In, uh, its origin, which mm. comes from its head, that is the church's head, mm -hmm. uh, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, and maybe if I can attach a quick little question before before Nick goes next, and um, one of the questions that I sent you to, and this, this is attached. Um, so why why is this, and keeping the the proper focus of the church primary, why why is this focus so important for the life and mission of the church? When it, I mean, if you, if you ask your rank and file Christians, like, what is the church? They're going to be like, I don't know. It's a, it's a body of believers who, who profess the same Christ. So why, why is this definition, why is this doctrine so important for the folks of the church? Yeah, I'll try, I'll try and be uh, concise here. That um, warrants an extended discussion. And, yeah. and it'll come out as we get into the interview, I think. But um, the short answer is because it's God's, prescribed means for the spiritual edification of the church's members for the conversion of those outside of Christ and then for perfecting them in other words growing in their holiness and sanctification as they uh, progress towards the world to come mm -hmm. so the church has been given a specific job description Another thing that will come out that's also uh, very important and related to your question is that um, this, this doctrine of the church uh, finds itself in the uh, eternal council, the inter-Trinitarian inter council between the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son hmm. about how the elect would be one to Christ and then prepared for the world to come. And so 
I mentioned that first and foremost, that may sound a little heady or abstract, but, but Stuart Robinson, who wrote quite a bit on mm-hmm. the church and the spirituality of the church, locates it in what we call technically the Pactum Salutis, uh, that covenant between uh, the Godhead. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself is the fundamental reason why it's really <laughs> important. Mm-hmm. And even though in the past decade or two, it's kind of been thrown under the bus. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But um, um, because it was founded, you know, the spiritual mission of the church uh, within this intra-Trinitarian council before history began I, I argue it deserves a place on the bus, not to be mm. thrown under the bus. Yep, yep. And because the fact of the matter is, if you, if you don't accept this teaching of scripture and theology and history, what are you going to replace it with? Mm. This is what God has ordained uh, for the conversion of um, his people through the ministrations of the church and then for their sanctification also through uh, the church and especially um, through the officers <clears throat> means grace. Yeah. And it helps us rightly calibrate all kinds of other questions, especially hot questions that are being asked right now, such as what is the corporate church's responsibility to the culture in which she resides? Yep. Yeah. And we'll get into some of those questions more particular and kind of broader as we get along with this too. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That kind of tees up this question is uh, now that we covered the, uh, definition of the spiritual spirituality of the church and the importance of this doctrine um you kind of went into if you if you don't understand that you're going to probably replace it with something else so what are some improper incorrect understandings of the spirituality of the church and how and why uh do these come about yeah so if I can answer that question, um, I'll, I'll do so by giving some modern examples, but, but yeah. also delve yeah. a little bit into the history. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so it used to be that the spirituality of the church was a treasured doctrine, especially among Presbyterians, mm-hmm. who understood that the, spirit, that the mission of the church is indeed spiritual, and that things properly belonging to her job description were the administration of the sacraments, the preaching of the word, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, but um, with all the brouhaha, if I may call it that, in the <laughs> last several years, uh, with regards to social unrest and mm-hmm. and um, all the civil disobedience that we've been seeing, and the clarion call again and again and again, the drum being beat to address systemic injustices uh, in the culture and that kind of thing. So some some people have unfortunately caricatured, misrepresented the spirituality of the church doctrine as being bad um, and that it was merely, um, for example, the product of Southern Presbyterianism in and after uh, the Civil War as a doctrine to hide behind the skirts of so that um, plantation owners could continue their exercise of, of um, slavery, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and, and, and even within Napart churches, for example, like the PCA, 
um, it became, it went very quickly from a time honored status to one that was almost pejorative. Hmm. And um, that was because one of the theologians in the PCA was relying on a secular historian named Maddox, M-A-D-D-E-X, mm-hmm. who did some really kind of sloppy scholarship on the spirituality of the church and was trying to locate descriptively. In other words, as a historian, they do descriptive work to say, well, when did this thing come to birth? And he made the claim that it was um, um, came, out, came out of border states during the Civil War, those would yep, be yep. those states that didn't commit to the North or the South, like Missouri and Kentucky, and were kind of a mixed bag. And um, and that also that it was a doctrine of merely the Southern um, states. And well, that's that's just factually wrong, because the teaching of the spirituality of the Church. I already said that I think it goes all the way back and can find its birth in the. Pactum Salutis, that mm-hmm. Trinitarian uh, covenantal dialogue between the Godhead. But historically, it goes uh, back actually to Scotland mm-hmm. um, and secondarily to England. Um, the short story on that is the state or the magistrate was trying to uh, appoint ministers in churches, and that elicited what is called the disruption controversy where churches um, rebelled against that notion and said, no, we should be allowed to appoint our own ministers and to have authority over our own administration of the sacraments and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, that was imported to the United States uh, through the Scott-Irish migration. But Alan Strange in his dissertation on the spirituality of the church and Charles Hodge argues that it goes back in this hoary past that is in this elevated esteemed past all the way to the early church you can mm-hmm. find the seeds of the doctrine the spirituality of the church uh, from uh, the uh, very uh, beginning so it's not just a southern uh, doctrine um, and it's very the, it, to come back to modern examples and answer to your question Nick is um, it was very interesting doing work on this and to see how often the church has a propensity to do more than her job description lays out. Yep. Yeah. And so this, this helps restrain the church to mm-hmm. stick to its job description. And, um, and, and so ministers should not be up, um, irrigating to themselves, uh, telling people in the pews for, um, for whom they should vote in the upcoming mm-hmm. elections or whether we should drill for oil in Alaska mm-hmm. um, or a hundred other issues over which confessional Presbyterians and um, Reformed people may have differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so this, this helps the church stay to its job description and have confessional unity with exegetical diversity and hopefully without unanimity so that we can have different people with different party allegiances within the church. We can, you know, in different ideas uh, mm-hmm. about a, a whole host of political issues. It keeps the church 
out of the state's business hmm. and it keeps the state hopefully out of the church's business. Yep. Yeah. Is that helpful? I can give you more. Oh, yeah. examples, no, no, that's, that's good. Other I think, questions. <clears throat> yeah. Well, next question. And it was also kind of my question too. Uh, maybe piggybacking, maybe just providing some more conciseness for, for others listening to it, like kind of the narrative that you hear, at least that I've heard over the last couple of years is that if you define the church in this quote unquote narrow way, then it's your quote unquote, get out of jail free card for not talking about the social ills of society. And you can, you can say, oh, I'm just blind to everything else. I'm just doing what the church is called to do versus what, what it sounds like you're saying is no, that's actually it, it, it allows us to do precisely what the church is, is meant to do. And then we'll get into some of this stuff later on and how individuals versus corporate within the church can interact with some of these cultural or, or social ills. But like you, you hear this, where it's just, it's like you said, it's, it's just us hiding behind the spiritual of the church saying, oh, we don't have to interact with any of this stuff because we're a church or because we're individuals in this church versus what it sounds like you're saying is, no, it's just we're defining our responsibilities, particularly so that we can be exactly what we've been called to be. That's, that's exactly right. So there's not an encouragement here intended, nor an incentivizing to a ghetto mentality that yeah. we surround the wagons and aren't concerned about our neighbor, mm-hmm. aren't concerned about injustices, even systemic injustices. There's a lot of talk about systemic yeah. injustice. That's hard to get at. I think there is such a thing as systemic injustice. Mm-hmm. It's hard to pin down, um, but surely the kinds of things we seen in life like apartheid uh, in South Africa or like Jim Crow laws in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Those are examples of legislated systemic injustices. But it's another question whether the church is called to address these things or mm-hmm. whether individual Christians are called to address these things, uh, as you say, uh, Peter. But also there's the issue, very important, I I just don't want this to get away from us, so let me stick it in here, and then later you can circle back around or (laughs) edit it however you want. But at at the fundamental basis of this important ecclesiastical doctrine is the notion of uh, that God alone, Christ alone, is Lord of the conscience. Yeah. And so officers in the church only have what we call declarative authority and ministerial authority. So, you know, Peter, God willing, when you're ordained in the future, the only authority you have in the church to which uh, your sheep will uh, be uh, beholden, in other words, it's incumbent upon them to listen to you and Mm -hmm. be compliant, is the authority which Christ delegates to you from his word and not outside that authority. So it's it's ultimately about different spheres of authority, uh, which uh, different institutions mm-hmm. on earth, on history have been given. And so this, this doctrine primarily grows out of what we call uh, divine right Presbyterian government. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll make that distinction right now. It may be somewhat new for some of your- uh, Probably, yeah, I think. They might know like okay. kind of like what it refers to if you if you go into it, but I don't think they'll know the term. Okay, that. so let me let me define it. So so the Latin here is Ure Divino, which means divine right. And basically the teaching here is that uh, God has given in his scriptures, which are sufficient to explain 
what our job description is and what we should teach and preach and, and do. God has given sufficient information in his scriptures with regard to the government of the church, as well as with regards to the teaching of the Bible. Yeah. Okay. And so um, as and over against that is the notion of um, humano, it's called a form of government in the church, uh, which is left to the judgment and discretion of its members or even its officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes this is a good way to explain it. We're fond of talking in reform circle about the RPW, which means the regulative principle of worship. Yep. Yep. We can't do anything we want in worship, no matter how wise it may seem to us, we we can only do in worship what God has prescribed. Now, there's yeah. certain circumstances that are left to human wisdom, but but the argument here for the spirituality of the church is um, that um, because we believe in divine right government and RPG, okay, <laughs> regulated principle of government. Yep. In addition to a regular principle of worship, that everything we we have in scripture is sufficient to explain what our job description is and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. So, for example, we we shouldn't be making pronouncements to the civil government to tell them what they should do. Except in extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary cases, the Westminster mm-hmm. Confession says, mm-hmm. and only when asked. And then even when asked by way of humble petition. Yeah. In other words, it's incumbent upon the church to be respectful of the sphere of the government and magistrate to do what uh, it is called to do. And and so we ought to be praying uh, for civil leaders every week uh, in church. And um, so all this is to say, though, that um, this doesn't mean that, um, as you were saying, Peter, that we're looking for a way out of responsibility to love our neighbors mm-hmm. because, because we live in a common grace world. That is, we live in a world uh, that is filled with believers and unbelievers. Uh, and especially right now in the um, ecclesiastical epoch time period we're in, um, we need to love our neighbors because we're all uh, common members under the Noahic covenant. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we ought to show love of neighbor in all kinds of ways. Hmm. Um, and um, so this isn't an escape clause. Uh, it's merely respecting uh, precise job descriptions. Is that helpful? Yeah, no, oh, that's, yeah. that's really good. Now, we've talked a little bit about this. We, we've had... <clears throat> Dr. Van Drunen on for two kingdoms. We've had um, Dr. Van Pelt on for the Noahic covenant. Have those, how those two things interact with each other. And so kind of, I mean, kind of opening this up too, where we go back to the, the biblical text, that's where we get the spirituality of the church first and foremost, not just a, a doctrine we make up, but what, what kind of, you go through a couple uh, parts of scripture, a couple narratives in scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. So what, so what, what are like the exegetical, biblical, and we can get onto the other stuff later, but some of the biblical foundations, we're not, we're not just making this stuff up out of, out of thin air saying this is what we believe because of we've done it for a couple hundred years, but we see this in the text. So what, 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 what in the text tells us this, this is, this is the way that the, the church has been, been made and, and how we interact with culture. 
Did you say you'd have Professor Van Drunen and Van Pelt on? We did. We had. Yep. Yeah. You're kidding. No, I'm joking. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, all, all of us agree on this, yeah. and 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 of course, uh, Professor Van Drunen is not only a good friend but one of my colleagues. Yep. And, and I cite him profusely in the book. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. And. Um, but also, uh, Professor Van Pelt uh, believes the same thing we do with regards mm-hmm. to the New Age Covenant, and he also is very careful to distinguish between the covenant and Genesis 6.18, uh, made with Noah and his family being mm-hmm. separate from the No Way Covenant uh, in Genesis 8.20, 21 through 9.17. And this is fundamental to your view of Christianity as it relates to the culture. Yep. People who don't distinguish between those two covenants, um, uh, this is all over the place in biblical mm-hmm. theologies and commentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make all kinds of very facile mistakes. So, um, so as Professor Van Druden told your hearers and your audience, so hopefully they're aware if they're just jumping in at this point, the Noahic covenant is a non-redemptive covenant. covenant. Yep. So Professor Andrew says that it, uh, the rainbow hangs, he says this very eloquently, the, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> the rainbow hangs bloodless in the sky, okay? Mm-hmm. So there's no shed blood to redeem people. It's a uh, covenant of restraint that basically is talking about how to love neighbor and some, uh, not a blueprint for government, but at mm-hmm. least the seminal principles there for the development of the restraint of government. In, in his most recent book, he's got this wonderful dovetailing with Romans 13, 1 through 7. So in my book, I, I uh, give a biblical basis. Um, I'm an Old Testament scholar, as Peter said, and mm-hmm. so um, I start with Genesis 1 through 3. Mm-hmm. And, um, and many of the foundational principles are there in the beginning. What's very interesting is the priestly aspect hmm. uh, given to Adam and Eve in the beginning, Adam especially. Often we hear about the royal mandate given to subdue and rule and multiply, um, but, but often the priestly aspect is not... Uh, given its due um, place. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting after the fall, so Genesis 3 and following, is the priestly aspect is never mentioned with regards outside the redeemed community. Mm. And this is where people um, often uh, go wrong on this. And, um, but, you know, with regards to the kingdom of priests, you know, first Peter and that kind of thing, Exodus 19, those, those are applied to the covenantal community, okay? So they don't belong out there in the so-called secular culture. I'm not mm-hmm. using secular in the sense of secularism. I'm using it in the sense of uh, non, um, non-religious or non-cultic. In other mm-hmm. words, um, separate uh, category. Yeah, like not divinely instituted or... Well, this is instituted, but not, not a churchly function. Exactly. So now, in my view, Genesis 4 um, with Cain and Abel's story becomes very important. There you see uh, the origination of restraint. Now, it's not a blueprint for government, but we see hints there of God moving in to provide uh, restraint against 
somebody seeking vigilante justice. And so I talk about that in my book. And then Genesis 9 very much repeats that. That's where people typically go. And you've already heard from Professor Van Drunen there. And he has very eloquent development in this. He's written more profoundly and profusely on this than anybody in recent years. And um, so um, then I go to the Joseph narrative, uh, to the best of my knowledge, no one has really tried to develop that as no, an yeah. example of this. You know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm getting this term from my friend, Daryl Hart, hyphenated existence. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we see in Genesis 4 that you have a common grace city of man, so to speak, develop. So what was originally intended to be the tale of one city, Adam and Eve, and uh, offering obedience, but they failed and offered disobedience, cast the whole creation into a condition of sin and misery, as the confessions say. After the fall, we get to sail, uh, the tale of two cities. And so you get the common grace city, and then, um, and then you see that God raises up <clears throat> believers in his name, an altar uh, community uh, there who began to call on the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so the important principle here uh, that starts at Genesis 4 and is, is uh, rehearsed again in Genesis 9 is that you have a believing community calling on the name of the Lord that's plopped right down into the middle of a common grace culture and environment. Mm-hmm. So they live as I started to say, a hyphenated existence. How, how do they live as believers in the one true God, but find themselves rubbing shoulders with neighbors who don't believe in the one true God, are often idolaters or polytheists, um, um, good-hearted atheists, <laughs> um, <laughs> etc. And And so the Joseph narrative gives us a wonderful example of this kind of hyphenated existence for somebody in God's providence who finds himself in the court of a secular king, namely the Pharaoh, and yet he's a believer in uh, um, God. And so um, I have a short chapter on that. And then I go to Daniel and um, have a longer chapter on Daniel. And uh, Peter read through Daniel with me uh, mm-hmm. last year. Aramaic. Yep. This section is in Aramaic. The court tales are a masterful illustration of how one lives a hyphenated existence in exile. And so they're not in the land. They're no longer mm-hmm. under a monarchy or no longer living in a theocracy. They're exiled. So here uh, there's nice instructional material about uh, how uh, one ought to conduct oneself, especially in the court of the civil magistrate, uh, and be a believer, but also um, show proper deference uh, to the situation in which uh, one finds itself as, as a believer. Hmm. And then, um, so, and then I jump up to the New Testament and cover some of the key passages. I won't go into detail on them, but uh, the power of the keys. So Matthew 16 and parallel passages in the Gospels where it talks about uh, our Lord um, gives the powers uh, of the keys to Peter and the apostles uh, to basically loose and bind in the church. Um, So that in these discussions about the primary mission of the church, that often, of course, comes up. 
Um, Matthew 22, I talked about briefly, uh, which is the famous passage where our Lord says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Um, Ephesians 1, through 23, I talk about, and I build on Craig Troxell's wonderful mm -hmm. article here. Um, it may seem like an oblique way to get into the primary mission of the church, but what we see here is Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God and all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. And uh, Craig Troxell uh, has done a lot of work on the headship of Christ and that as an extremely important doctrine, which you don't hear emphasized much, no. sadly. But every rubric of ecclesiology comes under this doctrine of the headship of Christ. It's introduced in our Westminster Standards in chapter 25 and chapter 30. And then I deal with John 18, John 19, where Christ is uh, standing before Pilate. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And uh, Romans 13, 1 to 7, and 1 Peter, I already mentioned. So those are the main New Testament passages I use mm -hmm. as the foundational grist for the mill of the spirituality of the church. So it's you all relatively well-founded biblically. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and your, your audience probably hears here in the background, and you already mentioned it, that um, this is intricately related with the two kingdoms uh, doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there on two kingdoms theology. And, um, um, two kingdom, um, two kingdoms folks like myself, un unapologetically, and Professor Van Drunen, um, mm. we we don't uh, disagree with the notion that Christ is ruler over the entire creation. Uh, obviously, he is. Um, but what we try and do is make a distinction between uh, the kinds of rule that Christ exercises over his creation. So he's a universal ruler by virtue of being the second person of the Godhead over the entire creation. But over the church, uh, he rules as mediator of the covenant of grace and primarily through his word, uh, the scriptures. And so um, you're probably hearing the same kinds of things that you heard from Professor Van Drunen along these lines. Uh, yeah. The spirituality of the church, primary mission of the church is intricately uh, related to. Uh, two kingdoms um, um, doctrine, which is the more historic doctrine, even though it's been somewhat marginalized yep. um, in recent times. But it sounds like you've covered that ground already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I can make one bold claim. Yeah. I came to the conviction, I already had this notion that and especially with all the brouhaha that we've been experiencing out in the culture, right? In the yep, past. Yeah five to 10 years, uh, that it's time to double down on the primary mission of the church and the yep. spirituality of the church. If ever there was a time yep. for clear, precise distinctions, now's the time so that people aren't led astray. And then furthermore, and I'm not trying to be uncollegial here, uncivil, it's, it's just, I think, to throw a little bit of a challenge out there, I think if a person... Um, has not embraced a careful, properly defined two kingdoms doctrine, uh, then that will affect their ecclesiology and their view of the spirituality of the church and vice versa. In yeah, other words, agreed. They, they go hand in hand together.
Totally. Yeah. And you, you mentioned this earlier and I'm glad you did. Cause I was thinking about it in the beginning of the conversation is that something that's just great about the reformed church is that we worship God the way he prescribes us to worship him through scripture. And as Jesus Christ is our mediator through the church, we follow Christ as the head of the church and not let culture drive the church and not let the, the tail wag the dog kind of thing. And there's so many churches out there that I feel like, yeah, they allow culture to push the church in one direction or another. And it's just great that the reformed church has guardrails. I mean, we we stay focused on the, the finished work of Christ and scripture. And then that way, as Christ is the head of the church and, and we follow him, we're able to best love our neighbor um, because we're actually exemplifying and doing what Christ is versus having culture tell us how to love our neighbor, which is never going to be the best way. So um, I just love that you, you, you clarified for the audience that we, the church, there's a two kingdom aspect there. And so uh, I don't know if you have a comment on that part before I jump into a question. Well, only to say, and especially since you described um, the majority of your audience um, the way you did, to, to clarify and maybe drive home um, this last point that it really has teeth to it in the best sense of the word. It really has traction. That ultimately these doctrines are given for... Uh, uh, the members in the church for their protection and for the protection of their conscience. Mm-hmm. And, and so that they aren't abused. Okay. So there's a lot of talk about abuse these days. Okay. And there is a lot of abuse going on in the mm-hmm. church, not, not just talking about physical abuse or sexual abuse, but abuse of power mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. to bind consciences in the way that, our Lord um, uh, never dreamed of his church doing. And, and um, if you don't understand these principles, so the restraint that I talked about earlier is actually exactly as you say, Nick, it's liberating so that Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. Uh, I love how D.G. Hart opens up his, his big fat tome on Calvinism from Yale because he talks about the Reformation started uh, by uh, eating sausage at Swingley's house, because <laughs> basically the Roman Catholic Church during Lent was saying, you can't eat meat, uh, you know, uh, uh, during mm-hmm. Lent. And so they said, well, we don't see that in Scripture, and Scripture is the only thing that binds our conscience, so let's have a mm-hmm. sausage fest tonight and throw the, throw the bratwurst <laughs> yeah. on, on, uh, on, on, um, on the uh, barbecue. And but but I'm, I'm going, well, what does this have to do with the primary mission of the church to feed the sheep and to pronounce upon them, you know, the demands of the law, uh, the resolution for the demands of the law, namely, um, you know, the crisis provided satisfaction and a, and a perfect meritorious righteousness by which we can find liberty and forgiveness. And even getting into concrete things about like forgiveness and um, et cetera, et cetera, equipping the saints to live their lives in this society, but because of the Christian doctrine that they're supposed to be fed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, oh, that's great. Uh, just to kind of my last question, just to kind of 
soften the the landing of this plane also uh is at the very end of your book you you kind of not to give the audience the the conclusion of your book so you can read it for yourselves guys but uh you do talk about uh the the context of history that who paul was writing to so a lot of this uh primary mission of the church we can find by how paul describes how to worship uh christ too and um in Acts 17, verses 18 and 19, you kind of describe what's going on, um, even historically context. And uh, it, it was a great history lesson, too. Just very fascinating. I've been to Athens before, so it was really cool when you're talking about certain places and things. Um, but you're talking about um, how he addresses Greece, uh, Greece and Rome. But um, through Acts 17, can you, you have any feedback on that for the audience? Yeah, yeah. It's okay, I think, for ministers to do the spoiler alerts. Um, and, uh, <laughs> That's right. You know, you know, it's not okay for kids to go see the last Star Wars movie and then come home and tell the parents who haven't been able to get there yet uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, who, who dies in the movie. That's yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's not, that's not nice. That's not cool. These are good spoilers. Those are bad spoilers. That's right. Yeah. But you know, God's into spoiler alerts. I mean, think about the, right. the revelation. Yeah. I mean, he that's tells right. us what happens in revelation 21. There so you go. We can persevere in our pilgrimage, etc. cetera. So yeah. spoiler alerts are okay. And um, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I preach on act 17 numerous times. And uh, in fact, Van Drunen's name keeps coming up. Somehow he lands in the churches where I'm preaching on this. And so he's said <laughs> this sermon about three times, but um, I, it, it occurred to me, I didn't set out to intend to finish the book that way. Uh, but hmm. as I worked on act 17 and spent a lot of time on uh, um, studying the Acropolis, and then had the privilege also of going there a couple of years ago. Um, and um, it struck me, okay, well, let me just finish with an illustration of Acts 17. And um, yeah, you can get the book and read more details uh, there. But what you have on the Acropolis, um, you know, often it's said that um, Western civilization is a footnote on Periclean Athens and everything that happened up on that Acropolis as far as the, the greatness of Western culture. Um, and um, you have some of the most amazing statuary and iconography and architecture and, of course, the sayings behind uh, all um, that art and the literature that we know exists that, that was, um, you know, being produced during that time. Um, so you essentially have to frame it up, a situation where the Apostle Paul is uh, ministering as the missionary to the Gentiles. And he finds himself at the acme, at the, at the apex, and the height of culture. So, so between the fifth century and the Roman period, you know, when they basically took over Athens and subsumed it for the Imperium to kind of baptize it in Roman power culture, um, you know, all those beautiful ideas and all the beautiful architecture and everything it meant. Um, um, 
it would be like to put it in modern terms, and I say this at the end of the book, it would be like taking um, the statuary in Washington, D.C., which is meant to impress, or in New York or Chicago skyline. I didn't use that, but it fits. And, uh, or, 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 you know, the heights of culture is exemplified in the art and architecture, uh, the extant material that we have in the British Museum. Um, and and, and if, you, if you were to take that and plop it down into Harvard Yard, mm -hmm. where, you, where you have the, you know, the elite tier one, uh, you know, academic atmosphere, uh, or, you know, University of Chicago or the Sorbonne, that's the atmosphere into which Paul is bringing God's word. Mm -hmm. and, and so where I was going with that is it said, well, it kind of begs the question, um, what does God expect him to do in that situation? And by means of extension, what does God expect the officers in the church to do with regards to the ministry of the church? Um, now, this is, this is high, high level culture, but you could say this about any city and any culture. Um, you know, you could say it about Escondido, which is not exactly a high-level culture. You could say it about San Clemente. You could say it about, you know, uh, Santa Ana, uh, wherever you're going in the future, Peter, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, just what does God expect of his church? And, and what we see, Paul does not address the culture per se, even though he uses the culture and mm -hmm. has a connection point by quoting their own poets, he gives them basically a systematic theology. It, mm -hmm. it was striking working on this passage because he, he goes through almost every major um, section of systematic theology, creation, the aseity of God, in other words, his independence, the creator-creature distinction. He says, you all descended from one person. Well, there's a doctrine of federal headship of Adam, uh, you know, and he keeps building and building and building. And then, you know, the, the symbol is the resurrection. And, and, and as I say in the last chapter, you know, why did Paul say what he said and what effect did it have? Well, embedded in Acts 17 is a record that, you know, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers maybe didn't accept what he had to say. They thought it was foolishness. But there were conversions that came mm -hmm. about. And so we need to remember, um, uh, as we exercise the primary mission of the church, we're talking to people who are fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and who struggle to make a wage under horrible bosses um, and who try and maintain relationships as hard as that is sometimes. And so... Um, those are the people that are in the audience, um, not just the sophisticated cultural elite um, that, you know, they're, they're, they're people of the flesh, they're earth dwellers, just like us mm -hmm. who have real families. And, and they know as God opens their eyes, how often they fall short. Mm -hmm. So that's our glorious mm -hmm. opportunity and mission to bring them the gospel of forgiveness and saving grace in Jesus Christ week in and week out. Hmm. Yeah, and if nice. this would be a harder, a harder landing. So we're kind of as we're coming down, we're, <laughs> we're trying to find our footing. Um, but so I'm gonna I'm gonna add these last three questions that I have together because I think I think there there's some relationship with them. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm there's a lot of people and you talk about it in your book who who talk about spiritual of the church 
as it relates to slavery or kind of systemic racism. And that also, I mean, over encompassing with church and politics relationship. And I think how an individual relates to these and how the corporate church relates to these things. So if maybe it's, it's kind of a hard question. So how, how do we, how do we not just talk to our detractors and say the spiritual of the church allows us to be racist and we can just um, not talk about the racism present in the, in the world or um, we don't have to talk about politics. And so how, how do we see all these things at like with the mission of the church and also the distinction between the church and the individual who makes up the church? Yeah, great, great, great. Um, so I'll try and answer all three of those. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Throw three curveballs right at you. One, so, so when I other. finished the first draft of this book, it was about 76,000 words. And then uh, that was a couple of years ago. And then all this social brouhaha happened that we've seen during COVID and, um, you know, with um, the clarion call for addressing uh, um issues of racism and um, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we've all seen it and I think you get what I'm talking about. So again, to emphasize that this is not meant to allow the church as a corporate church or individual Christians uh, get out of jail free card that we don't address the hard issues roundabout in our culture. Um, and there is no doubt that at times the spirituality of the church doctrine may have been abused uh, by um, um, people um, for such ends as justifying their um, um, race-based slavery, you know, the peculiar institution of the Southern states, you know, in the 19th century. Um, so I do address this issue. The, the mm -hmm. book doubled in size in the past <laughs> three years because I thought, well, I just heard people crying out for help on, on uh, some of these uh, issues. So you have to get the book and read it. I, I make the perilous <laughs> mm -hmm. step of addressing some of these issues. Yep, yep. Um, but, um, but let me just say that any doctrine can be co-opted for uh, evil purposes. Yeah. Uh, even a high view of the Lord's Day can be co-opted for, you know, illegitimate biblical purposes. But during the Civil War, Southerners generally agreed that the church ought not to address um, um, or discipline her members who were slaveholders. Um, and even in the North, um, Hodge, people like Hodge, Charles Hodge, uh, were included in this. Um, in fact, he thought abolitionists were more disruptive to the peace of society uh, than anybody, and uh, revivalists, ironically enough, too. So it almost made the Civil War inevitable when it finally came. I, I try and address in the book, uh, you know, head on some of those things. Yeah, we yeah. need to talk about those things. And, and I think, you know, we ought not to sweep it under the rug, and people are crying out for discussion on that. And um, so let's not make any mistake that the South's peculiar institution was race-based. Mm -hmm. But even to talk about race is a very complex uh, notion. Um, and so I talk about in the book, you can read about that. Um, uh, the very definition of race and racism has gone through tremendous refraction 
in the past couple uh, centuries. And I, and I talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also talk about the so-called myth of ham uh, in the Biblical Studies Guild, to which I belong. Uh, there's been quite a bit of discussion about what's called the myth of ham. So ham, of course, was one of the sons of Noah. And um, unfortunately, through a mistranslation of a very ancient text, there was a proliferation of the notion that what happens in Genesis 9, uh, when Noah had his oracle, is that he actually cursed Ham uh, to um, um, uh, servile um, slavery, and also that it was a curse of blackness, in other words, black skin. Now, that's a mistranslation. And it proliferated throughout um, uh, the world uh, for 20 centuries, sadly enough. And it also was a um, a misnomer such that it justified, sadly, centuries and centuries of man-stealing from the continent of Africa and relocating um, um, Black individuals and Black families and severing Black families all over the world. An argument can be made the Muslims were um, uh, more egregious in this than anyone. Mm. Um, So, but I I talk about that because uh, during the 19th century, there were a lot of uh, people who actually held to this notion. You know, they, they were in this point of tension. How do I justify having as an indentured slave uh, a a Christian brother whose skin happens to be black. Well, one way they sought cognitive rest was by relying on this um, myth of ham uh, doctrine that many people did in the 19th century. So I actually spent time talking about that. Uh, so, for example, Robert, Robert Dabney uh, would be a Southern yep. theologian, would be an example of such a person. Um, and um, so in 1818, American Presbyterians actually made in their highest court at General Assembly a, a pronouncement against um, uh, slavery and um, called for the church and the society Uh, as soon as reasonably possible to ameliorate these living conditions and to, um, frankly, resolve the peculiar institution of uh, race-based American slavery. Unfortunately, for all kinds of reasons, that went sideways and downhill and eventuated into um, uh, the horrific uh, war um, uh, known as the Civil War um, in 1861. I also talk briefly about those who tried to maintain the odd political nature of the church. Uh, so this was very interesting. You have a number of, hardly ever gets talked about, but you have a number of border state pastors. So remember border states were those that were neither committed to the North nor the South. And uh, they wanted their churches not to politically commit one way or the other. And they, that was, that was a, a precarious place to put oneself in those days. And so some of those ministers had to flee to Canada. Um, um, There's one guy named Samuel McFeeters who actually lost his pulpit and was exiled from the state of Missouri. Hmm. Um, 
and it took a toll on his family and his health. He actually appealed to the General Assembly and lost his appeal. Uh, Charles Hodge, a northerner, actually agreed with him that he was unjustly treated. And then he actually got a hearing with uh, President Lincoln and uh, was exonerated by President Lincoln. But you never hear about those injustices. No. <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, um, you know, we need to communicate to our people that the ultimate um, answer for racism, whether you're in the Middle East or whether you're in China or uh, whether you're in Latin America or whether you're in the United States is the gospel. Mm -hmm. So the spirituality of the church allows us a category uh, uh, to uh, talk about where real reconciliation can happen. Hmm. Very briefly, think about this. When Paul took up the collection for the impoverished Jews back in Jerusalem, he took up that collection among Gentiles in Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. A collection from Gentiles who had never met those Jews and the Jews previously believing Jews now back in Jerusalem hated Gentiles. Hmm. And, and now you're taking up a sacrificial offering uh, in order to, you know, uh, ameliorate the suffering of Jews back in Jerusalem from Gentiles. Now there's a beautiful example of addressing the issue of racism, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that the church can um, exemplify uh, love of, of others um, um, despite mm. uh, a less than desirable past. Mm. So my point is, it's not the job of the corporate church to address these extremely complex issues. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and, uh, but that doesn't keep individual Christians from um, addressing it by being responsible voters, mm -hmm. becoming informed, um, going to law school and getting a law degree and then writing legislation in order to uh, rectify systemic injustices, all, all kinds of other in, uh, avenues for individual Christians to do that, either as individuals or as collectives of individuals. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, did I answer all three yeah, no, questions? That's, that's <laughs> you did a lot better job than than I probably asked the question. You, you answered it better than than I asked, which is good. But I, and I think you 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 started ending it out, and I, I think the way that's probably most proper to end out this to end out this episode. So how how does this? We talked about kind of individual interaction with some of these things. How how in your book are you hoping churches individuals take this and apply this? Okay, this is. This is what we do as a church. This is what we do as individuals. Well, I think that happens in our small communities as churches and under the guidance of the mature hands of officers. Um, and um, so let's, let's say that a member in, in your church, Nick, or your future church, Peter, has a real desire to um, address the inner city and the plight of um, the poor um, and the lack of social upper mobility somebody may experience in, in that area. Um, um, well, great, then um, they, they should um, try and address those issues as individual Christians or as a collective of individual uh, Christians. I cite the Rafiki Foundation mm -hmm. as a yep. good example. Yep. 
of, uh, you know, going in and helping even with education and medicine in third world countries and impoverished countries. Um, and at the same time, catechizing uh, the kids with whom they're working as well as mm-hmm. giving them, you know, vaccinations and helping. Um, but uh, I think it becomes problematic when we start to define the primary mission of the church as uh, increasing uh, the social economic upper mobility of those outside the church. Mm. I just don't find that in scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not a praiseworthy goal. Yeah. But the how is, I think, the answer. Yeah. And your, your primary flock being those, those covenanted within the church. And so if there's a social ill within the church, if there's need of money or, or need of a job, or whatever it may be within the church, as officers, as deacons in the church, and that's that's what, um, and I, I think you make this this case in, in the book too that um, that's that's that is the mission of the church. Part of the mission of the church is is allowing those who have these needs within the church community to help them out, and then obviously they're part of the church community, so they're hearing the gospel on weekend week out. But that's not necessarily the focus of the Sunday morning or Sunday evening message. Like, let's figure this stuff out, but individually, corporately, there's the things that we can we can talk about and observe and and play out within the church as well. Right. I realize that's probably not that that might make me some friends and some enemies <laughs> yeah. because yeah. a lot yeah. of the churches already have operationalized in, in their church program, um, you know, all kinds of things yep. um, speaking and helping into the community. And so, but um, yeah, I, I want people to become more reflective about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's good. And I think <clears throat> I think this book will go a long way and and hopefully people will pick this up, pick up some of the books that you we've been talking about and think more deeply on I think we've just kind of assumed maybe that this is how the church has been done for a little bit and maybe this is how we should keep doing the church versus looking back to scripture and saying, no, what is what does scripture tell us to do? What is the primary, like you say in the book, the title? What's the primary the primary mission of the church? And it's priest of gospel, mystery sacraments, prayer, and um yeah, exercise church discipline for the restoration of the church. But that's thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking about your book. It's been a pleasure, and um, at least I'll see you in about a month. So that'll be that'll be fun to see you and have you again. But yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's great. It's great to be with you, man, Nick. It's nice to meet you. Hopefully, we'll you meet face to face sometime. Remember, yeah. remember me to those gentlemen that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Well. Well. Thanks. And and. We hope you have a great day, and I'm sure those who are listening, we'll, we'll, we'll say it again. As we say for every other book, buy this book, read it, give it to your pastors, give it to friends, give it to lay people. Um, let's let's have a better understanding of what the church is according to the word. Thank you. Thank you. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. 
it helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.